You're listening to the sermon podcast from Meadowbrook Church in Cheyenne, Wyoming, with Pastor Keith Miller. If you could stand to honor the reading of God's Word, that would be great. And children, just remember, we have little gold plastic coins. You draw a picture or something related to the sermon, uh, you, you get a free ice cream thing at uh, Sanford. So, so just be mindful of that. A bunch of you did that last week. Uh, I even had some kids taking notes, like the, the last service. It's like a page full of notes. I said, you should keep this. Like, you, here's a gold coin. Um, she should have gotten two gold coins. But all right. We're going to look at Romans chapter 9. We're going to only uh, read the first eight verses. We're going to spend a couple weeks, maybe two or three weeks in Romans 9. I'll explain uh, why that is in a few minutes. But if you can follow along. Romans chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because they are his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that It is not the children of the flesh who are children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. I want to pray one more time, just uh, that God would open our hearts. God, I pray for this time that we're about to just unpack your word, to, to consider what it is saying to each and every one of us. And I ask that you give us ears to hear, give us eyes to see, and uh, that you would through the preaching of your word, that you're, you would change us through the power of your spirit. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You may be seated. How many of you have had road rash at some point in your life? Okay, uh, as a child, you remember when you fell, right? I always fell. I was always getting banged up. And mom or dad would say, okay, we got to clean that, right? Remember that? How, for how many of you was the cleaning of your road rash more painful than the, than the road rash itself? Anybody? Yeah. It's, oh my goodness, it stung. So in 2017, when I crashed on my, on, on my bike, I had road rash from my shoulder all the way down to my ankle. And after I arrived to the hospital, uh, the nurse looked at that, looked at me and said, yeah, we're going to have to scrub that. I said, uh, what? Like, what do you mean? Yeah, we have to scrub your road rash. I'm like, well, how much of it? All of it. I said, oh, yeah. I forget what I said. I said, I'm sure I said other things. But it was, like, I couldn't, I, and when she scrubbed it, literally, it wasn't, it wasn't like mom or dad. Like, like, for example, like when Nathan or Seth got hurt and they got road rash, I would take the rubbing alcohol, and I wouldn't do this, right? I would just gently, you know, because I was sensitive to their pain. But, you know, nurses, they're around this stuff all the time. 
It wasn't that way for me. It was really exactly what it was called, a scrubbing. They scrubbed my road rash. Why did, they, why did she scrub my road rash? Uh, because they didn't want it to get infected. They needed to make sure that all the, 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 the gravel and everything else that was in my skin was removed. When I think of Romans chapter 9, I think of that experience. I don't know, how many of you have read Romans chapter 9? Okay, so how many of you were a little bothered by what you read? No, nobody, okay. You're not honest. The first, so the first time I read Romans chapter 9, it bothered me. Uh, I, and I'll talk about this next week more, but when I encountered Romans chapter 8 and, chapters not, and chapter 9, I went through kind of a, a, a crisis of faith. I could not understand or reconcile in my brain how uh, a God of mercy and grace would harden some hearts and soften others. Oh, this language of that he has mercy on who, those who he has mercy and, and, like, and he picks who he has mercy on. Or the language of like some vessels he's made for honorable use and some he's made for destruction. Like, What does that mean? I'm not going to tell you this week. <laughs> that will be next week. Uh, but I want to set, the, I wanna set the, the stage or lay the foundation for, for why, why Romans chapter 9, in my opinion, is the linchpin between the first eight chapters and chapters 10 through 16. Uh, you know, chapter, chapter 10 is easy. Like, how will they hear the gospel if somebody is not sent to them and does not, you know, does not preach to them? How will they hear the gospel and receive it? That's chapter 10. Chapter 9 is, you know, God, God is sovereign even over your salvation. I didn't say this uh, in the first service, but I'll, I'll say it here. I was thinking about this two days ago. I was thinking, man, why, why do we have such a difficult time with the sovereignty, sovereignty of God when it comes to our, our, our will? And it dawned, it dawned on me. We are more comfortable imposing our will on God as opposed to him imposing his will on us. Are we not? Like, like that rubs against the grain of our American culture. Um, and so we'll unpack a lot of that next week and, and maybe even uh, the week after that. But I just want you to lay the foundation of why the first five verses are in chapter 9. Uh, Paul so he begins by saying, I, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. He's like, I, I just got to get something off my chest. You know, I just, just wrote chapter 8. And chapter 8 is encouraging, right? Here are six reasons why there is no condemnation for anybody who is in Jesus Christ. And, and here are the six reasons. And Paul laid those out for us in chapter 8. But then in chapter 9, he said, but there are implications to chapter 8. And the implication is, if God, if God foreknew you and predestined you and called you and adopted you, if he did those things, then that means there are some people he did not do that with. That's the rub of chapter 9. And I think chapter 9 is kind of Paul's uh, scrub, the Holy Spirit's scrub, to disinfect or from a man-centered theology or a theology that places mankind at the center of God's universe. 
Because here's the reality. You, re you ready? You are not the center of God's universe. God is the center of his universe. Like Matt Chandler said, you're not the point. <laughs> and, and, and until you understand you're not the point, you're just going to jack up your life. Paul's saying, you're not the point here. And he, and he, but he says, I'm, I'm speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow. He doesn't say I'm just sorrowful. He says, I have great sorrow, a great sorrow and, and, and unrelenting, unceasing anguish in my heart over the plight of my Hebrew kinsmen. Like the, 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 they are the recipients of the promises of God. God told Abraham that he was going to bless the nations through his descendants. And, and Paul was saying that the gospel, that salvation, the promise is right at their doorstep. It's right at their, their feet. It's available to them just to embrace and to accept. And many of them refuse to do that. And Paul says, I'm, I'm in anguish over that. I'm in anguish over that, and here's why. I'm just, there's just two points in this, in this message, and the first is that there is a future shame that is coming. Well, what do I mean by that? Um, I think chapter 9 is dealing with shame. And uh, I'll, I'll show you why. In Daniel chapter 12, the words will be on the screen, the first three verses, it's talking about a coming judgment a judgment that's coming, that God is going to, that we're all going to stand before God. And in Daniel chapter 12, he says, at that time, uh, or the, uh, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince, who has charge over your people, and there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been uh, since there was you know, a nation till that time. He's talking about a time of, some people call it the tribulation. Uh, there's a time coming. I don't think we're in it yet. Uh, but at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And then it goes on to say, and many of those who sleep. That's a description for, for uh, death. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake. It's talking about a resurrection. I, I commented on that last week a little bit. Some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. That's where I get the title of the sermon. Some to, to, to everlasting life, and, and for those who rise to everlasting life, they will shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who, you know, who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. But, but there will be many who will stand before God and they will uh, be judged and they will be condemned. And, and that condemnation is described as shame. Shame and everlasting contempt. Uh, literally, the picture in Daniel 12 is, is, is a picture of the redeemed who are shining, who, who are beautiful in the sight of God, God, and the cursed, who it will look like night of the living dead. There's nothing beautiful about what's going on with those who, who, who are cursed. Uh, Revelation chapter 20, verses 11 through 15, gives us a, a little more detail about that judgment. Then I saw, the Apostle John says, then I saw a great white throne, 
and him who, who was seated on it, from his presence earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead uh, were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. And Paul says, I am experiencing unrelenting anguish over my kinsmen because I know many of them are going to wind up in the lake of fire. I know many of them are going to be raised to everlasting contempt and shame. Great sorrow and unceasing anguish. You know, and then he goes on to say, and, 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 and if it were possible, <clears throat> in verse 4, if it were possible... Uh, or verse 3, I mean, if it were possible, I would myself would be cursed. I wish that I would be cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers. I've never felt that way about anybody other than my family. Like, have you, honestly? I, like, I, I want to go to hell in place of my neighbor. Like, I want them to go to heaven, and I want to I, I, I go to hell in their place. I've never felt that way, to be honest with you. But Paul did. Uh, Paul felt that way about his kinsmen, and, and, and it's significant because of what he's going to write, or what he writes following verse 5, which we'll talk about next week. It's significant why he feels this way. This is not something that he's just like willy-nilly writing down. He's, like, chapter 9 is not Paul the super-Calvinist, right? Like, hey, for those of you who know what Calvinism is, and uh, great. Uh, for those who don't, don't worry about it. Um, <laughs> I don't have time to go into it. But like, it, it's dealing with the sovereignty of God, and, and, it, and it bothers him that there are going to be his, kins, his kinsmen will, experiencing, will experience everlasting contempt. And then here's the other uh, verse where I get the title of the sermon, and it's the very last verse of Romans chapter 9, if you're looking at a Bible or on a digital device, you can go to it. It's verse 33. And Paul quotes a passage from Isaiah, Isaiah 28. It says, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And whoever believes in him, speaking of Jesus, whoever believes in him will not be put to what? Shame. Will not be put to shame. Will not experience condemnation. Where have you heard that word before, right? Uh, Romans 8. There is no condemnation for those who are in who? Christ Jesus. And in those whose faith rests in Christ Jesus, there is no what? Shame. There is no shame. No, no, no condemnation. And so Paul says, for this reason, I mean, they're, they're, they're rejecting you know, Jesus, and for the reason of their rejection of Jesus, I am in anguish because it's just right there. The gospel is right there, and it's available to even them, and they reject it. Yeah, and it's, nothing has really changed. Like the stone of stumbling is still the same stone of stumbling. 
The stone of stumbling is that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, period. That's a stumbling block to a lot of people. Why? Because what it tells you and what it tells me is that there is absolutely nothing that you can do to contribute to your salvation. Like, you can't, you can't be good enough. Like, Keith Green famously said, you know, just like going, uh, you know, he said, just like going to McDonald's doesn't make you a cheeseburger, going to church doesn't make you a Christian. It, you, you can't do enough good things. There's nothing that you can bring to God's table and say, look what I've done, now you're obligated to let me in. Now you're obligated to forgive me of my sins. And that is a stumbling block. Why? Yeah, well, one, it goes against our pride, right? Don't you think? You mean I can't do anything? Like, I, like I, I, I can't contribute? No. Why? Because you're not good enough. That's Romans chapter 3. No one seeks for God, no, not one. Uh, the illustration that comes to mind, I've shared with you a bunch of times that, you know, we run from God like a thief runs from a cop. The other, <laughs> I embarrassed my children the, uh, a couple days ago. We were out on the balcony, and there are some kids. I've become that grumpy old guy, I think. There, there's, a, there's some kids out in the, in the playground park area by our house, and they were just cursing. You could hear them. And I just got my preacher voice on, and I just said, watch the language, really loud. And my kids just all hid. <laughs> and I just stood on the balcony. And uh, you know what they did? They ran. Uh, and you know what they did while they were running? The same thing I would have done when I was 15 or 16 years old and, and behaving like an idiot. You can't tell me to shut up. And then you know, continue cursing. That's the way we respond to God. It reminds me of a kid who, who the, the little girl who, who learned how to play piano, and mom said, we're having company over, and I want you to play the piano for our company. And the little girl was not happy about that. She just didn't want to have anything to do with playing the piano in front of a bunch of strangers. Uh, so, so the time came, the company came over, and the little girl uh, was asked by her mom, okay, it's time, can you play the piano for us? And she said, no, which caught mom off guard. Mom said, yes, you will play the piano. And the little girl said, no. And it just escalated, and mom said, go to your room. And when you go to the room, you stay in there. And so the little girl walked up the steps and slammed the door, which... You know, I'm sure made mom even more angry. And then after the company left, mom went up into the room and couldn't find her little daughter anywhere. Uh, and then it dawned on her, maybe she's in the closet. And so she walked over to the closet, and as she opened the door, the little daughter was just trying to get enough saliva to spit. And the mom said, what are you doing? And the little daughter said, I'm angry, and I've just been spitting in this room over everything, and I was just trying to get enough uh, more spit so I can spit some more. That's our response to God, <laughs> right? It's just like, I don't, I, I, I don't want anything to do with you. We might not say it that way. I don't, want, I, don't, I, I don't want to be near you. And so that is our response. We run from God like a thief runs from a cop. And, and, and the idea that there is one way to experience the salvation of God, one way to, to know God, and that one way is through Jesus, 
rubs against the grain of our humanity, our fallen humanity. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through who? Through him. Through him. And so Paul said, you know, I, 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 I know this, and yet it's, salvation is before my kins, right before my kinsmen, and they reject it. And the same is true with Cheyenne. The gospel is right there in front of, in, in, before our neighbors and before our co-workers and our family, and, and the response initially is to reject it, to reject it. And Paul goes on to say in verses 4 and 5, he says, you know, they are Israelites, and so to them belong adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, you know, and he said that he's there, and they, yet they reject it. And, uh, and Paul says, I, this bothers me. And he goes on to say, uh, he says in verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. Now that's the turning point in chapter 9. The Hebrew people, Israel, by and large, you know, rejected the gospel, have rejected the promise that was made to Abraham. And, and the temptation is to think that the word of God has failed or that the rebellion of, of the Israelites was just so great that it was too much for God to handle, so he went to plan B. And you know what plan B was? Us. <laughs> and uh, and that's not, that could be furthest from the truth. It's, it's, that's not true. And so uh, to understand where Paul's coming from, you need to understand Israel's history a little bit. So this, this is the second part, that the promise is God's blessing. The promise, there's a coming shame, and, and even though there's a coming shame, the, the, the promise of God is blessing. It's blessing. The story of mankind begins in Genesis with Adam and Eve, right? And God said, look, you can enjoy everything in the garden, but there's one tree that you're not allowed to eat from, and that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And what happened? They ate from the tree. Why? Not because they were curious, not because they wanted to know what it tasted like, but because they did not want to be subject to God. They wanted to be equal with God. And as a result, all of mankind was cursed, all of creation was cursed. That's why we have COVID-19 today, because our world is cursed. We're under a curse. And uh, the peace that was experienced in the garden when God created all things was uh, vandalized, as one theologian said. It was vandalized. It was, it was ruined with, with the curse, with the fall of mankind. And, and, but God didn't end things that way. He said, why? He said, I, I'm going I'm to turn this around. And the way I'm going to turn it around is going to be on my terms. There will be a, a deliverer who will come through your seed, through your gene pool, Adam and Eve, and he will crush the head of the serpent. He will, he will make all things right. And uh, like Noah before him, God uh, sought out Abraham. That's a major theme in the Bible, by the way, that God is in the business of, of seeking out people. You never in the Bible, uh, you never see people seeking God. I mean, there's a hint of them seeking. You have Cornelius in the, in the book of Acts who, who prayed to God. But it's God who approaches sinful man 
and Abram was doing his own thing, later to be known as Abraham. His, he had an unfortunate name, uh, meant father of many or father of multitude. And, and how many children did he have when we were introduced to him in Genesis chapter 12? Zero. And then his wife was, you know, past menopause, so the hope of a child, not happening. And God said, I'm going to bless you. In chapter 12, he says, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing, and I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be what? Blessed. Will be blessed. Well, what kind of blessing? Uh, not, not your uh, full bank account, not, not a pain-free life. No, the blessing is a blessing where God would reverse the curse of sin through one person. On five other occasions, God reminded Abraham of that promise. Then after Abraham's descendants, you know, Abraham, you know, they, they had Isaac, and then, you know, Isaac had children, and their children had children, and their children had children, and after Abraham's descendants moved to Egypt because they needed, they wanted to escape a severe famine, they wound up in Egypt for over 400 years, and it didn't go well for them. They were in a land that was not promised to them under the tyranny, tyrannical rule of a person that, that didn't have their good at heart. So God raised up Moses to deliver them. And so you know how the story goes. Moses, Moses led Israel out of the bondage of, of the slavery of Egypt through the, through the power and directing of God. And, um, and after he led them out, they wound up in the wilderness for a time, which uh, that didn't go very well for them either. Like, I mean, you think about it. Think about the, the time that Israel uh, was led by Moses. For years and years and years, they're in the wilderness. And um, every time I read about, uh, about that in the Bible, like w w there's a secular culture uh, that reveals the heart of uh, the Hebrew people, and not just the Hebrew people, the hearts of mankind in general, where, where they were led out of, well, just before they were delivered from, from Pharaoh when God parted the Red Sea, what did they say? What was their complaint? It would have been better for us to just hang out in Egypt and remain slaves that led them to this mountain, delivered them, and after he delivered them, uh, God led them to this mountain, and Moses said, hey guys, and I'm paraphrasing, he said, hey, uh, I'm going to go to the top of the mountain for a while, I'm going to talk to God on your behalf, he's going he's to give us you know, his commandments, his covenant, you hang out here for a while, I'll be back. And what did Israel say? They said, that sounds great. You go up there. We're going to continue worshiping God. We love him. He and, and Moses, you're the man. Like That's kind of like the theme of Israel's uh, interaction with Moses. So Moses goes up to the top of the mountain, receives the commandments, and what did Israel do at the base of the mountain? The Bible says they rose up early and they played. And we're not talking about building blocks or, you know, uh, touch football or any of that. Like, Things got really bad. Uh, and because there's children in here, I won't go into the de de details, but it was bad. And uh, God judged them. And that was kind of the cycle of their life. 
Like they would say, yeah, God, you're awesome, you're amazing, we repent, we turn from our sins, we will worship you, we'll have no other gods but you, and then it wouldn't take long for them to start worshiping other gods. And that's why they spent so much time in the wilderness. It's like God, it's almost you can hear God say as you read through, uh, you know, Exodus and Numbers and, you know, other books of the Bible, you can almost hear God say, you still didn't get it, go take another lap in the wilderness, You still didn't get it. Go take another lap in the wilderness. Like, you're not entering into the land until you get it. You still didn't get it. Go take another lap in the wilderness. And um, and Israel's history is one of disobedience in the midst of God's enduring patience. And even when they, after they inherited the land, even after they were blessed with the land God promised to them, they said, we're going to do this. Like, Joshua led them into the land. And Joshua said, hey, you, you know, you worship God, you know, if you worship him, it will go well with you. If you don't, it's not going to go well with you. And they're like, oh, we're going to worship him. He's our God. We love him. And it didn't take long for them to, to rebel against him and to wind up worshiping other gods. Even in their land, they, they, they started out worshiping him, and then they would wind up worshiping the gods of other people. God would raise up prophets, and God would tell the, speak through the prophets and tell them, Look, God, God's promised you that he will, he will bless you if, if you love him and keep his commandments. And they didn't. In fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 23, verse 37, weeks or, or days before Jesus would be executed, Jesus said this, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets. <clears throat> and, sorry. I shouldn't joke. Um, I just had Channel 5 here interviewing me, how everything was going. And... Okay, so rewind. Um, o Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. And so what did they do with Jesus? They killed him too. They killed him. The Old Testament ends with no promised land, no blessing, and no Messiah. And uh, when you read through the Bible, it, it almost, you almost hear your story too. I, I hear my story in the Bible as well. And uh, throughout Israel's history, there's always a group, faithful worshipers and lovers of God, that are described throughout the scriptures as a remnant. You know what a remnant means? It's just a, a group, kind of removed from the rest of the group a group of faithful uh, people. Uh, a remnant is also true in the church. Like, not everybody in the church are, are Christians. Just because, like I said earlier, just because you go to church doesn't make you a Christian. It, it, what makes you a Christian is a rock-solid confidence that Jesus is your righteousness, and he is the only righteousness that you need because there's no other way you can produce any other type of righteousness that would, that would satisfy the wrath of a holy God. You need an alien righteousness that is not your own. Jesus is that. Just like many of you came into this room, you sat on the chair that you're sitting in, and I didn't see anyone examine the chair to make sure it was going to hold you up, unless you had a bad experience in the past. I shared this with the first service. We, we had that. In the previous church I pastored, uh, we, we had really bad chairs, and somebody who was slightly overweight sat on it, and it, it, it broke, and he never came back to church again. 
I had not seen any of you examine a chair, so I'm assuming that didn't happen to you. But you trusted that the chair is going to hold you up. And the Bible says that it's that same trust, that confidence that Jesus is enough is what, is what gets a person saved. Or, or, or uh, That's called saving faith. And there's a remnant, there's always been a remnant among God's people, faithful worshipers of God. After Cain murdered faithful Abel, the faithful remnant was Seth. In the midst of the violence of the, uh, of the violent generations that came after Seth, the faithful remnant was Moses. After uh, you know, Abraham fathered Ishmael with Hagar, and then he fathered Isaac with Sarah, the, of the two sons, the faithful remnant was Isaac. Isaac and Rebekah had twins by the name of Esau and Jacob, which we'll talk about next week. Uh, of the two sons, it was Jacob who was uh, represented as the faithful remnant. Not because of anything that he did. Um, in fact, if you compare Jacob's life with Esau's life, Jacob seems more jacked up than Esau. After many years, uh, the nation of Israel you know, grew and was, became, later became known for her idolatry. There was a faithful remnant who remained faithful to God. How many of you have heard of Elijah? Right? Uh, Elijah, really cool guy in the Bible, a prophet. Uh, God used him to, to com- confront uh, a bunch of these prophets uh, who represented a false god, Baal, and God did a miraculous thing, and then some lady by the name of Jezebel threatened Elijah, and he went and he hid. He hid in a cave. And as he was pouting, he was complaining that he was on, the only prophet left in all of Israel. And God reminded him, there is a remnant of even prophets who have not worshipped other gods. And that remnant is 7,000 prophets. Throughout, throughout history, Israel's history, there have always been a remnant of God's faithful. And how about you? Like, kind of, where do, where do you stand? in the church as God's people. The most religiously devoted around, that surrounded themselves around Jesus, known as the Pharisees and scribes, prided, prided themselves on what they were able to do in God's name. And you know what Jesus said to them? Uh, he said something that didn't endear them. It didn't, it didn't make them want to be his friends. You see it in, verse, in Matthew 23, verse 27 and following. It says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like what? Whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanliness. You, so you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. And... Uh, and that's been the story of, of the Bible. Like there's nothing we can do to contribute to, to our righteousness. It's everything that Jesus did. And Paul said, I'm in, I'm in unrelenting anguish over my kinsmen for rejecting that. But I know that God is bigger than their rejection. He's bigger than their disbelief. He is, he's bigger than all that. He's doing something, and he is so powerful and so sovereign that he's even sovereign over the fickle hearts of mankind. Like, how do you explain? How do you explain? Like, I, I, I can't explain how it is that for years I rejected the gospel and then, and then God used the car to get my attention in the middle of Route 1 in Pendel, 
you know, Parkland. And as I was laying there, just fearful I was going to die, and then after I arrived at the hospital, uh, you know, after realizing I was going to be okay, forgot everything I said to God in the middle of that road, uh, and, then, and then hearing the gospel yet again, not wanting anything to do with it while I was in my hospital room, and then a day, that, that day I was released in the middle of my living room, everything so, suddenly just made sense to me. How do you explain that? How did I go from being spiritually dead to being spiritually alive? How did I go from being, wanting nothing to do with God to saying, you know what, I want you in my life? That's a great miracle, by the way, that God could take the spiritually dead and make them spiritually alive. We'll answer that question next week. The evidence of your salvation is not based on your religious activity, but a changed heart that God produced in you that now loves him. You want to know how you know you're a Christian? I'll tell you. That you are confident that Jesus is all that you need. That his righteousness is the only righteousness that, will, that, that enables you to experience God as a father instead of God as a judge. The saying that is true, that all roads lead to God, but most of those roads lead to him as judge. Only one leads to him as father. And, and the result that you really, the, the, the indication that you really believe that is a love for him. If you do not love God, then you do not know him. I know it's a bold statement, that's, but that's the testimony of all scripture. That's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 16, I think it's first, chapter 16, verse 22, if anyone has no love for God, anathema, damnation, So Paul concludes in Romans 9, he says, What shall we say then? The Gentiles who uh, did not pursue righteousness have, a, have attained it. That is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Paul says, because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it, but, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. That my only hope of salvation is in Jesus and him alone, not in myself. And there's a judgment coming. There's a judgment coming, and all those who are on the wrong side of that judgment will experience shame. And brothers and sisters, that is real. Like that day is coming. And I have loved ones, I have family, I have friends who, who to this day want nothing to do with Jesus. And they will breathe their, uh, their final breath one day. And when they close their eyes on this side of eternity, they will open them up before God as their judge. And they will be condemned. And, and they will spend all of eternity in torment. James Montgomery Boyce once said this, the pastor that used to pastor a church in Philadelphia, he said, God's judgment in the end will be so absolutely perfect that the damned will agree with the rightness of their damnation. Did you hear that? Uh, 
God's judgment in the end will be so absolutely perfect that the damned will agree with the rightness of their damnation. There will be no question at that point that evil will be seen as, uh, for, for the evil that it was, but God's goodness will be demonstrated for the goodness that it is. And the question that we ought to ask ourselves is, where do we stand in relationship to God? My, my guess and my hope is that most of you in this room, if not all of you, have a rock-solid confidence in Jesus Christ as your Savior, your only righteousness. But if you're here and on the live stream, I mean, we have folks watch the live stream from all over the place. If you're on the live stream or if you're in this service and you don't, you're here just because you think it's the religious thing to do, or you're here because you want to make a statement that this is your right to worship, or if you're here for any other reason than this simple reason that Jesus Christ you know, lived a life that you could never live and died a death that you deserved, then you ought to examine your heart and make sure that you really do believe in Jesus. The Bible says if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be what? brothers and sisters, saved, saved, that there is salvation found in no one else but the name of who? Jesus, Jesus. You don't have to work for it. You don't have to earn it. You just have to receive it. And, um, and that is how you are saved from shame in a COVID-19 world. Father, thank you so much for your gospel. Thank you for the greatest news in the universe. And as we sing this song, for those of us in this room, for those who are watching the live stream who believe the gospel, may we sing this song with all of our heart because of its truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Meadowbrook Church Podcast. For more information about our church, visit meadowbrook.org.